Null, dann lernst du, was ich meine. Du hast uns trainiert, ich hab Polizei. Du hast deine Maschinen, ich hab Polizei. <lacht> This is hell. Live from old Callahan's scrapyard, with his pack of Rottweilers on our tail, because we hopped the fans on a dare trying to find the legendary silver steering wheel of Evil Knievel's stunt car, rumored to be buried here. This is Limbo. I am still obviously not Chuck, and neither do I wish I was. Uh, I am still just producer Sebastian, uh, producing and monologuing again this week. Uh, a duty all of us behind the screens monkey monkeys are pulling as long as our dearly beloved host Chuck Mertz is still recuperating from what sounds like something the ancients would have ascribed to divine uh, punishment. And as the ancients do, I have consulted the stars, observed the flights of the birds, and uh, may or may not have read in some entrails. And the signs and portents foretell Chuck's return and imminent recovery. Maybe as soon as, uh, wait, wait, what, what does this say? As soon as Disco comes back? That, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, this is not an insurrection. This is not a revolt. This is Limbo. Um, again, producing today's show is me, Sebastian. Uh, and what's new with me? Well... I did actually throw a little bit of caution to the wind and started engaging in my favorite nerdy hobby again, tabletop role-playing. Uh, so, I'm widening the circle of people I see from a small handful to a slightly larger small handful. Which, hopefully, is fine in terms of COVID. Because I'm still not ready to let my guard down, and neither should you. Sadly, this is now a weekly recurring segment where I keep rambling about this. All I'm saying is, don't underestimate this disease. Uh, a new peer-reviewed study released this week found that while vaccination prevents hospitalization and death, and does cut down some on transmission, vaccination does not prevent debilitating long COVID effects. Long-term heart damage, long-term liver damage, brain damage, all of these things we know the virus causes but lack understanding of how or how to guard against them. Those are still on the table if you get COVID, even though you've been vaccinated and boosted. Of course, that still means that you should be vaccinated and boosted. It just means that if you're vaccinated and boosted, don't be, uh, don't be stupid about it. And meanwhile, politicians and media figures still try to tell us it's fine, off with the masks, back to work, back to consumption. And if you end up catching it and suddenly can no longer walk down the stairs because you lose the long COVID lottery, well, that's your problem, bucko. In the meantime, I am still working on populating our YouTube page, and hopefully once Chuck returns, I will get to upload new shows there, too. Uh, we still lack subscribers and viewers, though, so if you want to help us change that, First, go to youtube.com slash thisishellradio1996, youtube.com slash thisishellradio1996 for our channel and subscribe, and then spread the good word, why don't you? 
We are also in the process of setting up a Discord server where we can take your answers to the week's question from hell, have you suggest guests to us, and just hang out and talk to fellow fans of this here radio, live streaming, and possibly in the future YouTube streaming show. And apropos, what is this week's question from hell? <clears throat> Why, dear listener, it is, what is your Kelvin peeing on? What is your Kelvin peeing on? Referring, of course, to Bill Watterson's uh, beloved comic character, Kelvin, from the comic book series Kelvin and Hobbes. Uh, you can send us your answer to this week's question from hell via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. DM it to us at Twitter at thisishellradio. Or email it to Chuck, along with your wishes for him to get better, to chuck at thisishell.com. Or email it to us producers, alex at thisishell.com. Or yours truly at seb at thisishell.com, as in S-E-B at thisishell.com. We must have your answer to uh, this week's question from hell by the end of today's show, following an all-new Moment of Truth by Jeff Dorchin. The best answer to this question from hell will win its author instant enlightenment and all the romantic conquest they can carry on one arm. Powered by whatever piece of This Is Hell merch they want. The t-shirt, the tote bag, the trucker hat, the coffee mug, the loaded flash drive containing uh, the This Is Hell archive of interviews, the face mask, or the winter hat. You can see all of our merchandise right now if you go to thisishell.com and click on support. There you can contribute to completely listener-funded This Is Hell. It is, after, you, after all, you, the listener, who makes this your show possible, so thanks for all of your support. I will have some of uh, your answers following the upcoming interview. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your life. At the movies, on your grocery run, at the local zoo's alligator enclosure... While you dangle your second-born over the railing so he can have a better look at the reptiles, this is hell. So, I grew up quite well sheltered from the world at large. When I first came across the acronym, acronym ACAB, A-C-A-B, for the longest time I thought it to be some vegan slogan because the first explanation that I read was that it meant all cooks are bastards. Referring to, well, cooks cooking meat. I am, of course under no illusion that I am very much in the class of people that the police are meant to protect. And yet here I am being very, very, very of the police as an institution. As I grew older, uh, the more of this institution I have, uh, the, the more very of this institution I have become. And this has a lot to do with the police being more often than not an institution of arbitrary power and... Well, as I grew older and understood what arbitrary power really means, um, you're just like, no, it's not, not that great, right? Um, and sure, there are laws and regulations that are supposed to keep the cops in check, but as years of suddenly malfunctioning body cameras have, uh, have shown us, <laughs> the police are very good at circumventing these measures. And... Um, <laughs> And when caught doing so, they are usually granted often ludicrous amounts of good faith uh, by the by the general population. Cops are tremendously respected in society, even though they like to pretend that they're not. And they are usually 
fairly well paid for the jobs that they're doing. I mean, yes, sure, it, may, it might not be the greatest job in the world, but for the kind of job that it is, it is, it is pretty well paid. Um, they are very well funded, and they don't even have to be good at their jobs to earn any of the cushy pensions or societal deference that, uh, that we generally throw their way. If you look at the clearance statistics for most crimes that you'd want police to solve or prevent, it should become clear that there's something off. Clearance rates for violent crimes for major crimes are abysmal in most American police departments. Just like a few years ago, there was an article, uh, a report coming out that basically said that American police clears about 2% of all major crimes, which is just really, like, what? How is that even a thing? Why do we still have police? Um, and ditto, basically, for property crimes. And meanwhile, police funding is through the roof, or rather, through all roofs available. Big city police departments in the United States often have budgets that rival and surpass the military budgets of smaller nations. And they also have better equipment, but that's a story for another time. And what does American police have to show for it? The... 2% clearance rates? Like, maybe, like, Chicago police solves, like, barely 50% of all murders? Basically, you can you can kill a guy in Chicago, and there's basically a coin flip chance that you will never be caught. But, however, defunding and abolishing the police are very, very unpopular positions, both with the populations that receive most of the police's protection, as well as the, with the populations on the other end of the spectrum that receive most of police scrutiny. And as the following interview with uh, scholar and activist Cedric Johnson demonstrates, defunding and abolishing the police are positions that are that at best miss and at worst destruct from the real issue. Policing should generally be seen as a measure to control the lower classes. I mean, that is what policing is intended to do. Um, sure, it's also intended, like... At face value, it's intend like police are intended to preserve public peace, but in a lot of cases, they just don't, um, or more often than not, they don't. Um, and police presence actually increases crime rather than keeping it down. Uh, it's a lot of really weird things going on there. Um, but yeah, police is meant to control the lower classes and protect middle class capitalist interests. And that is essentially who the police are for. So people like me, or at least people of my upbringing and, and upwards, and people who enjoy the standard of living I grew up with, uh, not, and often also people who in addition to that possibly look like me, that's, that's who the police are supposed to be protecting. Of course, this becomes somewhat skewered in the modern day um, because there's additional issues to this because the police has... Uh, a strong incentive to follow its own interests and begins to evade the control of the citizenry and the state um, and is basically accountable to no one. So that's another problem for another time. And I'm, I'm, I am aware that the topic of police in general is something that we could have like a couple of weeks of shows on. Uh, but no worries, we won't. That would get a little tedious after a while. Um, anyway, but while police should indeed see fewer funds and less hand-me-down military gear and more general scrutiny, what should happen instead, as Cedric Johnson says, is an abolishment not of the police, or, but instead, there should be measures put in place 
that that come at the social dynamics that necessitate policing, abolishing poverty and inequality, are ultimately the ways to invest in a society in which policing of the underclasses, which sees the worst excesses of police violence, is no longer necessary. And but defunding the police without defunding the dynamics that keep large amounts of the population in poverty won't lead to a more just society. Um, but anyway, I'm just making Cedric Johnson's argument basically for him here. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's actually see what he has to say himself. Support for those protesting police violence is around twice the level of support for President Trump. There has been an impact on rhetoric, on culture, on the level of awareness of racialized police violence. But how can this lead to sustained change so protesters are not back out in the streets next year or the year after that or the year after that, still demanding the end of what our guest calls carceral power. Returning to This Is Hell to help us understand what the larger project of the movement could and should be, African-American studies and political science scholar Cedric Johnson wrote the nonsite.org article, The Triumph of Black Lives Matter and Neoliberal Redemption. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Cedric. Hey, great to be here. Cedric was on our show back in May of last year when we talked with him about his article, What Black Life Actually Looks Like for Too Long, the Left Has Organized Based on Caricatures of Black Political Life. If it wants to win, it needs to start recognizing the role of class in black America. You can find that interview by going to our website, thisishell.com, and search on the name Cedric because we've had lots of people named Johnson on the show, but only one name Cedric, and you can find him a lot easier that way. Cedric, let me just get back to your article. I was just thinking of this when I was reading your introduction earlier on the show. What black life actually looks like for too, too long, the left has organized based on caricatures of black political life. Do you see the white left or the left in general currently organizing based on caricatures of black political life when it comes to the protests against the murder of George Floyd? Well, I think in many ways we're right back to where we were before, right? Um, if anything, this this moment is gonna uh, is already creating a renewal of of some of those old ideas about um, blacks constituting a community, which is a a, a falsehood, right? Um, we're like nearing forty six million as far as population, um, so that's incompatible with any notion of a, a community. There are black communities around the country that matter. Um, but what happens is we end up moving from really old notions of black life that are derived from Jim Crow segregation, right? And when black people were largely excluded from public life uh, and therefore had to rely upon various brokers in order to advance whatever interests they had um, into a space now where we're still using those categories. We're still talking about black people as a community we still assume that blacks are a constituency with shared, widely shared interests. Uh, and what that does, I think ultimately it, it, it really leads away from the kinds of conversations we need to have about what specific constituencies within the black population want and, um, and what they are trying to work for in this particular moment. But I think, I think, again, I think we're going back to, you know, revisiting some of the same ideas that I criticized and others have criticized before. That's the idea that there is monolithic black political thought. 
What do you think leads the left? What do you think leads the white left to believe that there is monolithic, monolithic black political thought when we all know that that is not the case? There have been black conservatives since <laughs> first uh, African-Americans in this country, I'm sure. So what explains to you why the left would believe that there is monolithic black political thought? Well, I mean, I think part of it, you know, um, we, we're dealing with a situation where uh, what we witnessing in terms of police killings, you know, seeing is believing, right? So we've seen multiple videos of um, mostly black men being killed by police, in many cases unarmed. And I think, you know, that has a powerful sway on how people perceive the world, right? You don't necessarily have to read about it. You don't have to look at um, actual statistics and cross-sectional, you know, uh, cross-tabulation of, of um of the real the real numbers, but the conclusion is easy, right? We've seen black death, you know, uh, enacted on on television. We know that for a long time within um, within American life, blacks have symbolized the poor, right? I mean, the right wing was really good at at presenting us with the image of a, a you know a black welfare queen or welfare cheat. And so, I think many people still have, for good or bad, this idea that black people are um, you know, black people not only are the, the poor, the incarcerated, the dispossessed, right? Um, that that tends to still shape the way we talk about this. The other thing is, I think there's there's a lot of organizations, a number of organizations, you know, coming out of the civil rights movement, others that have been created since, who occupy that niche within um, political life, right? That if you think about the old uh, classic civil rights organizations, they shifted from fighting against Jim Crow to essentially becoming interest group type organizations within the broader American political arena and largely fighting against um, the rollback of uh, various gains that were made during the 1960s, as well as the remnants of, of the New Deal, right? So I think you end up with a, a situation where you've got organizations who are primarily charged with trying to defend civil rights and still tending to frame inequality within the context of, of race, right? Um, because that's what they've always done. The other thing is I think with social media, you know, now you have another dimension added to the mix where before, at least with some of those civil rights organizations, there's a level of, of organization, there's a level of, of hierarchy within in terms of uh, who gets to represent, what sort of messaging is going out. Now it's pretty much a free for all and any person can step up and, and begin to present themselves as a representative of this black body politic, right? And it's difficult, I think, for many whites to challenge that, right? Just because of the kinds of discourse that we have, where if you challenge it, you, you run the risk of possibly being labeled racist and canceled in this online, you know, social media culture. So there's a, there's a new uh, set of rules, there's a new decorum, a new set of norms and expectations about how we engage, which is both derived from the earlier politics of, of uh, Jim Crow and racial exclusion, but also unfolding on this new terrain of, of technology, which doesn't really have a whole lot of accountability mechanisms <laughs> built in. You know, it's sort of like any person can say what they want and any person can be brought down quickly by uh, a social media mob. So I think it's a dangerous terrain. And many people, I think, even though they, they see the difference, they know that these issues are much more complicated they're still worried about the possibilities of being dragged 
by somebody on social media. It's and I that, think that's one of the things that prohibits, you know, folks on the left and, and other, you know, people, even blacks from speaking out against the grain. It's that power of guilt and shame that you write about. And it's uh, it. It, it actually lacks a power. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. I, I just want to ask you, because of things that happened this weekend, we were told we might be at some type of tipping point by very, very optimistic people when things actually change in the United States, when institutionalized racism and the violent enforcement of property rights by the police are reconsidered as unequal, unfair, even deadly. Then Rayshard Brooks is shot in the back and killed by Atlanta police. What does this weekend's shooting reveal to you about the efficacy or any impact the protests have had when these kinds of shootings continue? Well, I mean, obviously it's not changing some of these police officers' behavior, right? I mean, that that video of uh, Rayshard Brooks killing this was was devastating i think um the worst part of the video is is to see him negotiating with the police beforehand and it reminded me of uh samuel dubose's killing in cincinnati back in 2015 similar situation he's being stopped um by a university of cincinnati police officer even though he's not on technically on the campus um and dubose same sort of negotiation with the cop and then he tries to flee and is shot as a result of it. And you just have to wonder, like, what are these officers thinking, given everything that's happened, right? I mean, I think some people are rebelling, right, against the, the criticisms that are being made. But I think what part of what, what's revealed to me is that the, the protests in and of themselves are not enough. Um, we have to think in terms of how do we build, you know, real legislative majorities to change things, right? It's not enough to just simply protest to the point where you get an arrest of an officer or a firing um, or some sort of grand jury indictment. It's not enough to ask for police chiefs to resign only to have some other person who's picked from the same, you know, pool and the same training, same background into a, a new, you know, the new slot. We have to think about majorities, right? And I'm not so sure we're there yet. I also think there's a discord between how many activists are perceiving this moment? Because I've heard numerous friends who, who seem to think, you know, at least in, in the heat of the early protests and some of the riots that happened in different cities, that we were on the verge of some major transformation. And I think that was wrongheaded, right? That was wrong in the sense that there's millions of people out there who are protesting. And, you know, if, I'm, if we're going to talk about Black people not being a monolith, we think about the entire American uh, citizenry and the kinds of people who are out protesting, they were out there for different reasons. I mean, some people were, um, you know, conservatives who've now woken up to the fact that black people are disproportionately killed by the, by the police. Some were uh, liberals who felt it was their, their duty to step out and to take a position on this um, because they have blacks who they're connected to and they didn't want, they, they no longer wanted to remain silent. So there's all sorts of different motivations. And I think the mo maybe the most important thing is many Americans don't necessarily share the same um, commitment to uh, abolition or dismantling of police departments or even defunding police departments. Most Americans, poll after poll, have a problem with police force, you know, excessive use of force. Most Americans now, as a result, I think, of these protests and all the Black Lives Matter organizing that's happened in the last few years, have come to the position that Black people are unfairly and disproportionately targeted 
by police and more likely to experience excessive force. I think that's one of the accomplishments of Black Lives Matter as a, as a phenomenon. But at the same time, most Americans don't necessarily want to see downsizing of police. They actually want more effective policing. Um, so I think that's a, the that's a difference between what the activists are saying and what the broader public is saying. And that's true even of Black uh, populations, right? Black communities, the same sentiment uh, is there, right? They actually don't want to see police killing African-Americans, but they also want to see more effective policing. And I think that's something that as we move forward, um, activists, intellectuals, other people who are trying to weigh in on these issues have to be mindful of. You write that while a slim majority of Americans now believe police are more likely to use excessive force against blacks than other groups, millions more do not share the most militant calls to defund or dismantle police departments voiced by some activists. I'm really lucky, Cedric, because as a Christmas gift from a nephew, I got a subscription to a small town newspaper in northern Michigan. And it's a, you Mm -hmm. know... 90% white community that votes two-thirds for Trump. And their letters to the editor are just amazing because a lot of pro-Trump stuff. But in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, not only did the newspaper not run any article about the murder of George Floyd, the only thing that showed up were in the letters of the editor. And the points that were made were interesting. Uh, One person said, this is absolutely awful. This kind of racialized police violence, what happened to George Floyd is really, really horrible. But you know Mm -hmm. what? We got to remember, this is just a few bad apples in the police department. Another person said, hey, look, I understand this is really horrible what happened to George Floyd, but we shouldn't be protesting in every city in the United States. This only happened in Minneapolis. I saw yesterday, or I guess this was Friday, a poll that showed 64% of people supported Black Lives Matter. And another 64% were against defunding the police. What to you explains this intense defense of police? What seems to be a fear of an end of policing when people understand that the police have an institutional racist problem when it comes to violence? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, I think there's a, it's a complicated thing as far as the, the place of police within American popular imagination, right? I mean, you can't turn on the television right now. You know, there's no way we can get through this day without turning on the television and seeing at least one program where police are the subject, right? And, and I know recently, I think cops and a few other programs have been pulled, um, But, you know, for the most part, if you think about popular movies, right, buddy cop comedies, various sitcoms where, you know, the police officer is the center, uh, central character, Um, you know, all sorts of detective and crime uh, television dramas, as well as, uh, you know, film that we've we've all grown up to, to, to love and to watch and enjoy. So I think police occupy a contradictory place in American society, right? On the one hand, they are seen by many people as guardians. And I think, you know, if we go back to the, the origins of the old thin blue line notion, it does reveal why we're both connected to police, but then also the, the immediate problems of it, right? When, when William H. Parker coined that phrase uh, in the post-war years, William H. Parker being the chief of police of, of Los Angeles, um, during the 1950s and all the way up until the, the Watts riots, uh, used that phrase as a way of 
talking about the role that police should play within society, right? They should be the thin blue line protecting uh, middle class virtue, middle class um, society, middle class interests from all sorts of potential threats. And in his mind, those threats were organized crime, uh, what he called godless communism, and also those working class and poor blacks who were then filling up the South Central uh, area of Los Angeles, migrating from Texas and Louisiana and Mississippi. And Parker was clear, right? He actually had in his mind a very clear sense of who the who the good people were, who the the you know who the people who deserved protection, and who were those that needed to be controlled, right? And that those ideas became increasingly clear uh, in the 1960s. And one of his biggest opponents, people forget this, one of his biggest opponents was actually Tom Bradley, who was a beat cop. You know, Tom Bradley would then later go on to become the first black uh, mayor of Los Angeles and would have a long reign all the way up through um, the 1992 uh, Los Angeles rebellion, right? So there's a lot of interesting connections here, but Tom Bradley was opposed to the kind of policing that, uh, even as he was a, a beat cop, he was actually opposed to the strategies that were undertaken by the Parker administration. And I think we have to return to that, right? It's really within that post-war period, um, the making of America as we, as we understand it, the making of the middle class, policing evolved as a way of, of protecting middle-class interests, right? Protecting newly, newly created suburbs, protecting those middle-class enclaves that still remain within cities from working class and poor people. Right, so it becomes a way of, you know, and especially as we roll back the welfare state, it becomes a primary way of controlling um, dispossessed populations, and at the same time, showing up the interests of the middle class, majority white middle class, but also other groups as well. So we should be be mindful of that too. But I think we have to get back to that, right? Ultimately, for me, I don't think it's enough to talk about um, defunding police. It's not enough to even talk about right sizing police departments and changing the character or the scope of things that police respond to on a day-to-day basis, we also have to get back to this, this matter of inequality. There are millions of Americans who are locked out of the affluent society. They weren't allowed to participate in the American dream or attain it in the ways that other people were. Um, black and brown folks, but also a lot of whites within, you know, in the Rust Belt towns, a lot of these people who voted for Trump, right? People in, in the heartland of America who don't necessarily see a path towards some kind of economic security. And I think that's why they're so resentful of, you know, other people who they see as having advantages that they don't. We have to get back to the question of inequality. I'm less concerned with abolition of, of police as such as with the abolition of the very conditions that police are there to manage, right? So getting rid of the kind of deep inequality that we have. I mean, I think we definitely want to want to right size and scale back some of these overblown police departments. But if we don't also deal with the inequality, you know, as you said, we'll be right back in the same place that we are now, right? And I think that's one of the dangers of the defund rhetoric. It doesn't go deep enough. You know, it's not just about rerouting funds that are used for police to social programs, it's also about dealing with the kind of inequality that exists in most cities where every year most cities commit, you know, uh, deep amounts of public funds 
to incentivize all manner of commercial downtown and real estate development, right? They do that at the expense of citizens, at the expense of people who don't even have a place to live, right? And so until we can sort of shift into that kind of conversation, I think we'll stay you know, pretty much stagnant. Where we may see some reforms, body cameras in some places, people are still pushing for that, maybe some right-sizing of departments in a few places, but we still have to get back to this fundamental question of inequality, you know, that, that I think is the reason why police, um, it's the reason why they exist, <laughs> it always has been, but it's the reason why there's this interesting contradiction in the U.S. where we both love them because many of us benefit from police officers, you know, those of us who have homes and living in, you know, nice parts of the country. And it also is a place of control. It's a, a, a mechanism of control for those persons who've been locked out. You write, this moment has been a triumph for Black Lives Matter activists, but once the plumes of tear gas dissipate and compassion fatigue sets in, the real beneficiaries will likely be the neoliberal Democrats and the capitalist blocks they serve. Why be concerned over neoliberal Democrats being the beneficiaries of the police violence protest movement? Do you think that concern could be an obstacle to the possibilities, the potentials uh, of the Black Lives Matter movement or this anti-police violence movement? Or does do you think it opens you to the possibilities of this moment? Uh, I think I think both. Right. So I think that it, it I think that it's a it's tough to call right now. Right. This is the difficult thing about commenting on some of these things is everything is changing so rapidly. My concern is I don't think people fully appreciate the fundamentally liberal nature of Black Lives Matter, right? That certain elements of Black Lives Matter, even organizationally, came out of the foundation world. People are losing sight of this, right? There are elements that come straight out of the foundation world. So it's not just a matter of co-optation. I've got friends who believe now that now that uh, Amazon and various foundations are stepping up to support um, Black Lives Matter or civil rights organizations or anti uh incarceration uh, organizations, that this is co-optation. It's actually not. It's convergence, right? Because some of these organizations were already moving along the same path. It's not necessarily incompatible with, um, you know, uh, the plans of, of some of these corporations. It's not incompatible with their interests, right? I mean, we've, we've had, we have a long history of uh, corporate multiculturalism, and this, at this moment, just seems very much like a revitalization of those ideas, not necessarily something new. Um, even during the Black Power period, you know, various uh, foundations and corporations stepped in to, to give an operational definition to what people understood as Black Power. And I think the same thing is happening now uh, all over again. But we have to be clear. This is why I think that, you know, as much as we can expose how easily, you know, uh, certain elements of Black Lives Matter become cajoled and supported by, you know, mainstream institutions. The more we can begin to carve out a much more progressive um, and I think ultimately more effective way of addressing these issues, which is to, to shift away from a politics of recognition towards a politics that's focused on redistribution. Um, and, and again, in a real, real deep way, because we, you know we're we're already in a in a terrible spot. I mean, I think this is the other thing that gets that gets lost in this last few weeks of of protests. I think 
on the one hand, it's, it's remarkable that we saw, um, we saw so many different protests across the country, right? We saw, you know, I think upwards of 500 um, different towns and, and cities that had protests. And so that was great. We also saw a multicultural, a multiracial and intergenerational populations of people who turned out for these different, um, different events and, and actions. But I think what, what we also have to maybe spend more time thinking about was the meanings of the riots, right? Because I've actually mentioned to a few people, I think the, there were the George Floyd protests and there were also the Donald Trump riots, right? Where we saw, you know, the kind of rioting that has not happened in this country, right? These are not the ghettoized rebellions of the late 60s or, uh, or even, you know, Ferguson and Baltimore, which were fairly contained in small scale. This was massive rioting. I mean, here in Chicago, you know, and, and looting, right? People, um, you know, stretching out into the suburbs to, to loot stores, right? And I think we also saw people looting commercial, central commercial districts, you know, not, not, again, not ghettoized rebellion, but people actually going into major commercial districts. And this speaks to the kind of uncertainty, the economic insecurity, the high levels of unemployment that existed partially as a result of the pandemic, but we've already, we were already moving in that direction. Right? We were already moving into a situation where many Americans felt like the old middle-class um, dream was no longer attainable. And I think that's what some of this is about as well. You know, George Floyd may have been, you know, the wick and the Molotov cocktail, but there are other things that are happening here that we also should pay attention to. And I think there's a, there's an opportunity to again, have these deeper conversations about redistribution. Um, but we have to push it. We have to push past the lazy ways of only thinking about inequality within the United States in terms of race. Because that, even, even that is inaccurate, right? I mean, it, it makes me kind of, um, you know, get a little bit of a, a private, I guess, chuckle when I hear, you know, millionaires as well as celebrity athletes talk about the experience of George Floyd like it could have happened to them. When that's highly unlikely, right? It's highly unlikely that these people will be subjected to the kind of routine policing that somebody like George Floyd was subjected to, or, or even someone like, like Eric Garner, right? Or Alton Sterling. I mean, these were people who were in many cases unemployed. They were people who were engaged in um, survival type crimes, you know, selling loose cigarettes, selling pirated CVs, which is what Alton Sterling was doing, or in the case of George Floyd, accused of having used a counterfeit $20 bill. So I think these, these um, you know, this is a different population, even of black people. These are, these are black people who are the most dispossessed. And we can find the same kinds of people in other ethnic groups in other parts of the country if we widen our, our lens. So I think, I think you're right. I think the opportunity is here. But we have to be leery of how easy this can be picked up by foundations, by centrist Democrats, and of course by corporations who simply want to use this as a way of, of um, expanding their market share. And I think what they really did was deflect attention away from the kinds of real labor practices they had um, you know, and the challenges they were facing before uh, these protests broke out.
So what does it say to you about organizations like, because you talk about this gestural anti-racism that was already evident at uh, Amazon, and you mentioned how J Jeff Bezos has donated all this money to Black Lives Matter, including the Amazon CEO wrote, I have a 20-year-old son and I simply don't worry that he might be choked to death while being detained one day. It's not something I worry about. Black parents can't say the same. So Bezos pledges. $10 million in uh, support of social justice organizations, the ACLU Foundation, the Brennan Center for Justice, the Equal Justice Initiative, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law, and so on and so on, and Black Lives Matter. So what does it say to you about these organizations for accepting this money when in on the other end of the spectrum you see Jeff Bezos within his company having very poor worker relations not having the correct uh, protective equipment at the beginning of the pandemic for overworking and underpaying and firing people who try to organize labor unions what does it say about these organizations when they accept this money well i mean some of them don't have a commitment to that kind of pro labor politics, right? I mean, some of those. I've also heard, and this is just, um, you know, I just heard this recently, that some of those organizations have not formally accepted the money yet. And it may not have even been a political stance for them, but it may have had to do with their own accounting and, and other concerns they had about, about budgets. So I think, I think um, you know, it, we'll have to wait and see, like, how it actually plays out. I mean, that was the initial announcement. But, um, some of those organizations do not have the same strong commitment to um, to labor, right? I mean, it's, and there's been tensions about this before. So I think I think that um, it could be that they don't have a commitment. It could also be that they figure, well, this this money will allow them to do good, and therefore they should take it. But I think the 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 longer run issue, right, is it helps to it helps to distract us right and also it helps to possibly distract those organizations from again dealing with the real heart of the matter which is that we have overblown oversized outsized police departments that are primarily charged with doing the work that a welfare state used to do and that generous public policy public goods um, public works jobs programs could do to improve the lives of millions of Americans. And I think that's, the, that's the, the problem with it, right? It distracts, it deflects, it reroutes uh, the attention that could go towards something different, something more substantive, um, and instead keeps us stuck in this idea that this is primarily a racial, um, and really an undying racial problem in the United States, when I think it's actually something different. Let's get to that something different. You write it, it you mentioned, sorry, Adolph uh, Reed Jr.'s article, I think it's from 2015 or 2016, that was also at nonsite.org. Uh, how racial disparity does not help make sense of patterns of racial violence, which you said you write should be read again and often during this moment of resurgent Black Lives Matter sentiment. You add that perhaps the most important part point in Reed's two, uh, 2016 essay, there it is, uh, 2016 essay is his insistence that Black Lives Matter and cognate notions like the new Jim Crow are empirically and analytically wrong and advance an equally wrong-headed set of solutions. He does not deny the fact of racial disparity in criminal justice, which is incredibly important, but points us towards a deeper causation and the need 
for more fulsome political interventions. Again, simple summary for people who may not have read The New Jim Crow. Simple summary of Michelle Alexander's uh, argument is there was racially driven slavery, then freedom was won, followed by Jim Crow as a blowback against that freedom. The civil rights era overcame Jim Crow. Then the new Jim Crow, which is mass incarceration, is the new racially driven oppression of black people and other people of color. You are not the only one who is critical of this work. Past guest on our show, as you and I have discussed in the past, who you cite often, James Foreman Jr., Pulitzer uh, Prize-winning author of Locking Up Our Own, he sees Alexander not considering the role of black politics supporting tough-on-crime laws as an oversight leading readers to believe racism and racism alone drives the mass incarceration state and fuels carceral power. If my summary is fair, what is missed when we believe racism and racism alone drives the carceral state and fuels carceral power? So there are a couple of things. I mean, in some places, right, um, a Black Lives Matter slogan totally makes sense, right? It captures exactly the problems that exist. So here in Chicago, um, around 72% of those persons who are killed by police within the city of Chicago are African-American, right? Um, which is far beyond their proportion of the, the population, right? We only make up, I think, one-third of Chicago's population, but yet 72% of those persons killed by police. Nationally, that number changes, right? It's, it's more like 24% of those persons killed by police are Black. So the other 76% are not Black, but how do we explain that phenomenon. I think this is what the piece that Reed wrote uh, was really pushing us to, to reconsider. Like, why, why don't we think about that, those other deaths and try to explain them? What is it, what is it about those other, um, that other 76% where people, you know, there's something in common that they have, not just the fact of their death, but the conditions of their lives, right, actually matters. And to me, the best example of how this gets lost, right, um, if you go back to 2016, the July 4th weekend of, uh, of 2016, when Alton Sterling and Philando Castile are killed, we see a wave of protest that erupts. It was actually probably the last major um, wave of Black Lives Matter protests before the, the more recent ones. And we, we organize around those, those two deaths because we see them, right? They're videotaped and they're circulated via social media. They fit the narrative that this is something that happens to black people. And you hear, you hear all sorts of activists grab a mic and say, this never happens to whites or this never happens to anyone else. It's only black men who get treated in this way. And yet that same week that Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were killed, 10 other people nationally were killed by police, right? Or 10 people altogether. So you had three uh, African-American men. You had, um, six Latinos, mostly in California in the Southwest, and you had one white uh, youth who was killed in, I think, Fresno, California. So 10 people altogether were killed, but only two become the flashpoints for political organizing. And I think, you know, when we, when we look at the numbers, like more broadly and across the years, for one, police killings of civilians have actually been on the decline in the United States for some, year, for some time. We've become more politicized by it because now we have access to, you know, we become witnesses to these, these crimes, right? We become witnesses to these killings. But ultimately, the numbers have been on a decline. And I think the numbers, again, reflect not a racial problem as such, 
but a broader problem within the, in the uh, country as far as those persons who occupy um, the poorest, either, either the poorest segments of the working class or those persons who live in places where particular modes of policing that are designed to control these poor segments are dominant. So even if you live in that area, you could still be subjected to the same kind of policing, right? No matter what your, your class status, right? So I think, I think this is the, the bigger issue, but when we, when we take a strictly racial uh, vantage point, then the solution becomes sensitivity training. The solution becomes something else, right? Like let's, you know, let's defund police and then fund programs specific to black youth and not thinking through, again, the role that the, that police plays within the society overall to shore up and protect middle class lifestyles, middle class interests in terms of property and housing and everything else. And at the same time, to relegate control and subordinate working class and poor people. Um, another, you know, example we could use, I mean, think about the plight of sex workers in this country, right? And whether those are black or white, uh, straight, uh, cisgendered or trans sex workers, they're subjected to continuous policing throughout the society, no matter which city we're talking about, no matter it's a small town, they're constantly harassed and harangued by, by police and routinely brought in. Uh, on arrest and charged and, and in some cases uh, incarcerated. How do we figure, how do we factor in those aspects, right? That these are, um, in many cases, people who are relying upon either criminalized forms of work or engaged in some sort of survival crime, petty theft. And that becomes the precipitating event of uh, a potentially fatal encounter with police. Right. These are, this is the thing that's missing, right? If we, if we tend to, to automatically take what happened today and connect it back to 1619 or, um, you know, early 20th century black criminalization, you know, in, in American cities and not think about it within our own context, because I think this is, this is ultimately where we have to go. It's great that many um, whites are, are, concerned about these issues, right? And want to show up and they're, they're concerned now in ways that they weren't before. My worry is that this doesn't necessarily trans, trans uh, fur or, or it doesn't necessarily transition into a commitment to real politics, right? Which is to say, I'm, it's not just I'm, I am opposed to police killings and I stand with Black Lives Matter, which is the the trending thing for people to do, but to actually say, I don't want to live in a society where we permit this kind of inequality. I don't want to live in a society where it's okay for, a, you know, for who you, who you become, what sort of education you receive is dependent upon how much money your parents have, where they can afford to live. Right. That shouldn't, that should be where we're heading as far as, a, as far as a conversation not just simply the symbolic gestures and expressions of, of goodwill, you know, checking in with, with black friends, but actually engaging in, in a different, you know, reevaluation of this society. Um, but I, I don't think we're quite there yet. I actually think that for a while, many people are going to be, you know, enjoying this kind of, of uh, 
moment of protest and and um, reconsideration in the abstract way, but not necessarily go towards a politics that demands sacrifice, like real solidarity. Because that's the difference. I mean, showing up and or changing your Facebook profile, you know, social media profile to show that you're in solidarity. That's not solidarity. Solidarity is actually being involved with other people and being willing to take risk in order to, to create something different, in order to advance the interests that you all have in common. And that's not, I haven't seen that yet, right? I mean, taking real risk, not, not um, just engaging in symbolic uh, politics. And so again, I think we have to have a different kind of conversation that goes beyond um, you know, outrage, it goes beyond um, a momentary um, feeling of, of connection or concern with minority populations, but, but towards a deeper reconsideration of this society, which, you know, we, that's one of the fronts we haven't succeeded on, right? We've, we've actually been pretty good at, at various moments at anti-discrimination, um, and we could do better, but... I think the deeper uh, question of sharing is a bigger problem for many Americans, right? Uh, it's all good until you say you can't have certain things because other people should be able to have those things as well, right? They should be able to have a house and, um, you know, not have to worry about uh, meeting their basic needs, right? That's a different kind of conversation. I hope I live long enough to hear that conversation, not just the one about, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and, how people should feel about their contribution to, to racism and reproducing racism. And you point out that, you know, white guilt and black outrage is just not enough. And that seems to be what this, at least aspects of this movement seem to be motivated by. And this, those just aren't a way towards real, true political transformation, as you argue in your writing. First of all, Cedric, it is always a pleasure speaking with you. I really have enjoyed our two conversations that we've had on the show. People can find your conversation with us back in May of 2019 at our website right now. This is hell.com when they search on the name Cedric, because there's been other Johnsons on the show, and Cedric, I think he's the only Cedric on the show. So I've got one last question for you, Cedric. We have been speaking with African-American studies and political science scholar Cedric Johnson, who wrote the nonsite.org article, The Triumph of Black Lives Matter and Neoliberal Redemption. And I strongly suggest that everybody read this article, because while we have been talking about it for 40 minutes, we could talk about this for another 40 minutes because this really is an outstanding work. And people, people just have to remember there is nothing that is above criticism, and criticism can make things better. Our final question for you, as it is for all of our guests, is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. If the choice is neoliberal Democrats benefiting from this moment or far-right Republicans, isn't it better that the Democrats do benefit than, more than the Republicans? How would you respond to those who th say they support the movement against police violence but also see neoliberal Democrats benefiting by displacing Republicans in the Senate House and White House, Senate, you know, House of Representatives and White House, this fall as some sort of victory for racial justice? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I'm, I was critical of the uh, the rollout of the uh, justice and policing um, bill. Um, but, you know, my views tend to be uh, critical, but also, you know, complex. And I think 
if that bill is able to pass somehow and it's able to reduce the the numbers of or the likelihood of of uh excessive force incidents i'm all for it right and i i actually do think that despite you know my criticism of the symbolism of it all i think that this moment could possibly change some of the local conditions we might see an experiment in minneapolis that you know may become uh replicated in other places if if they're able to downsize the police department and roll out other effective strategies for achieving public safety i'm all for that right if, if it's something that that's gonna that we can see possibly working and so i think again we're going to see in a lot of different cities different towns experiments this is great if it means that the that the democrats are able to to um gain power in some places and become a much more hospitable group of people to deal with at the local level at the state level in certain places i'm all for that as well but again i think dismantling police departments or even building in accountability measures is not enough, right? That's not going to take away from the reason why we have stress policing and militarized policing at this moment. A lot of it has to do with the inequality, the persistence of some survival crimes and Americans fears about crimes, maybe more than anything else, right? People's concerns about theft, and um, you know other other things that keep them up at night when they think about the lifestyles that they lead, or the idea that they should be able to move in, move about within cities, to the tourist zones, to various entertainment and commercial districts without being harassed or harangued by somebody else. So I think the inequality part has to be central. I don't have a whole lot of faith that the Democrats are going to embrace deep redistributive public policy on their own, right? I think we have a better shot at getting them to do it than Republicans. And that's why I'm more in favor of seeing, you know, at least some change in that regard. But we still have to be prepared to fight with the new conditions that are produced out of that. Cedric, I am looking forward to a future where we can have you up here in studio for an appearance. And I'm also looking forward to a future where I can buy you a beer, sir. Thank you so much for being back on our show. I really appreciate it. This is another fantastic conversation with you. And again, people can hear our earlier interview with Cedric from last year by going to thisishell.com and searching on his name. Cedric Johnson, thank you so much for being our first guest this week. Hey, thank you. Really appreciate it. All right, man. Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. And we're back in the present in 2022. Uh, This interview with Cedric Johnson was first aired on June 15, 2020. Um, Yeah, and until Chuck's glorious inevitable return, we will continue playing these staff picks. Uh, We will also have all new Rotten History, all new Questions from Hell, and all new Moments of Truth, uh, with one just coming up after uh, these um, following Question from Hell answers. 
if you wish to show your appreciation for our work here, go to our website, thisishell.com, and click on support. There you can buy our merch or subscribe subscribe to our Patreon, which you can also do um, at patreon.com slash thisishell, all of which keeps this here completely listener-supported blimp in the air. Without you, we got nothing. We guarantee you, on the graves of our third cousins, that there will be all new interviews, all new monologues, and an all new old Chuck. So, thanks to all of you for your support. Uh, and now, let's see what answers we have for this week's question from Hell. A reminder for the dear listening audience, this week's question from Hell was... What's your Calvin peeing on? What's your Calvin peeing on? Uh, on Facebook, Tyler R says, Turtles all the way down. Uh, I'm not entirely sure if that, um, what that is supposed to imply. Is that supposed to imply the, uh, the, uh, uh, uh novel by, uh, John Green? Um, the, the concept of turtles all the way down? Just turtles or... I, I don't understand this. Um, Alan G says his Calvin is being on his youth. Okay. Um, I mean, this could be uh, a comment that indicates that Calvin is peeing on the innocence of the youth when Calvin was not commercialized against the will of uh, his creator, Bill Watterson. As so many of you have pointed out, yes, we know he didn't want this. <laughs> Uh, Luke H. says, because Calvin is peeing on the void. Okay, if you pee in the void, then long enough, the void is going to pee back in on you. Uh, and Kim G. says, uh, there, Calvin is peeing on fur babies. <laughs> what have your fur babies done to you that your Calvin will be peeing on them? Hmm, maybe, maybe that's just revenge. I mean, I certainly have had fur babies that have peed on me. Uh, yeah. We will have more of your answers to this week's... Week, the. We will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following the upcoming Moment of Truth with Jeff Dorchin. Teaching your children to demand the local minimum wage for their lawn mowing duties and getting disinvited from all family gatherings as a consequence. This is hell. If you want to prove that one can have a successful left-wing talk radio podcast streaming program without mentioning any prominent Twitch streamers even once, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, go to our website thisishell.com and click on support, and see how you can further enable us to keep doing what we're doing, bad habits, good habits, and everything in between. If you want to be an enabler, at least enabler good things in the world, like us. I mean, that of course presupposes that we are a good thing. I guess we are, but then who am I to judge? After the moment of truth, just coming up now, uh, I will read the final answers to this week's question from hell, and announce this week's glorious winner. Broadcasting live and in color from land stolen from the Council of the Three Fires, the Miami, the Ho-Chunk, the Menominee, the Suck, the Fox, the Kickapoo, and the Illinois peoples. Woof! 
That's a lot of people the land was stolen from. Jeez. This is hell. And here is one who knows what I'm talking talking about. Give it up for El Jefe. Today, live in studio, Jeff Dorchin. One, two, you know what to do. Complaint department dump. Welcome to the moment of truth. You know the analogy. I dreamed what I would say to you, but in my dream, I forgot to write it down. Outside the dream, I had nothing either. I guess I'd be interested in what you think of microscopic weapons. How useful would they be to you? Little tiny guns no naked human eye can detect? Would those be of any use to you? You seem to enjoy miniature things, but is this maybe too miniature? We, as beings made up of almost entirely pure energy, with just a small amount of beef byproducts and benzoate of soda as a preservative, we at Extraterrestrials Unlimited are always looking for new forms to appear in that won't confuse you. The ostrich that speaks from its cloaca was a terrible mistake, and we have apologized many times, so please stop bringing it up. We are ashamed of the error. You've made us aware that our taking the form of a recently deceased loved one makes you uncomfortable, but those are easy for us because of how vividly you remember them, so it's a shame your fragile psyches can't be more accommodating. So many things in your memories tend to freak you out. That's not going to do you any favors when the really fabulous aliens come. Find a good therapist and deal with that as soon as possible. While we're on the subject of terrestrial human annoyances, your economy based on the accumulation of numbers is baffling. The numbers don't seem to represent anything. They don't align with hours worked for the benefit of a community, uh, nor with quality or difficulty of effort. They don't align with resource depletion or creation. They more closely correlate with in-group status, particularly among the in-group in closest proximity to the institutions tasked with generating the numbers, yet it is unclear how membership in such an in-group is attained, although there are no end of theories. And not just any institution can generate the numbers. What gives one institution the supreme privilege of generating precious numbers, whereas another institution must cajole numbers out of some more privileged institution or an aggregation of individuals who have somehow secured their own surplus supply of numbers? Your species is enthralled to this practice and the religion or ethos or epistemology that lies behind it. It can be very frustrating, especially when it interferes with the procurement of a need. The satisfaction of any need, no matter how dire, can be withheld simply due to a fealty to numbers every single being of complex sentience is expected to agree upon. The numbers fetish is a real drag. So enough with the idolatry of numbers. Work that out. Get it out of your system. Uh, another annoyance. This is literally the noisiest place in the galaxy. Did you know that? In a local sense, I mean. Within a livable atmosphere, not the screaming of the radiation winds in the void. That stuff's insane. Not talking about Jupiter with eternal tornadoes. Any complexly sentient being in a position to hear those would also be 
inundated with more salient wavelengths. But within an oxygen-carbon exchange habitat, it's not even close. All the horn honking, waves crashing, volcanic eruptions, construction, gunfire, animals shrieking, especially goats, explosions, sirens, music amplified to punishing levels, cats making bizarre, childlike, tortured keenings in the night, and the nightmarishly ubiquitous belching, popping, slurping, croaking, and clucking of human speech. How can you even think straight? <laughs> Never mind, don't answer that. I mean, clearly you don't, right? Look, I don't mean to be a totally negative Nelly. Those are some big shoes to fill, those ones Nelly wears. Ah, negative Nelly. She's my shero. But you know who else is on my list of most admired historical figures? Jesus, Santa, Paul Prudhomme, the Cajun chef, Bruce Lee, Virginia Woolf, Mr. Ed, Professor Irwin Corey, the Isley Brothers, Meatloaf, not the singer, but the food. Also, banh mi sandwiches, Detroit Coney Islands, double chocolate malted milkshakes, the classic hot pastrami on rye. What was the question again? Humanity, I ask you, if you could be any animal, what would it be? I'd be a pelican. You get the flying, the swimming, and the fish. What's not to like? Earthlings, I think the one big mistake, the one wrong turn you made that sent you down your current destructive path was the invention of pants. Look, is this at all helpful? Is this getting the wheels turning? Is this broadening your horizons? Because we don't want that. Your horizons are too broad already. We all need to focus. And by we, I mean you. And by all, I mean you. And by focus, I mean give yourselves a break. Don't beat yourselves up. Don't give yourselves a hard time. Workaholism is what brought you to the dark night of the soul where you now find yourselves. It's okay to feel good. It's okay to feel bad. I'm okay, you're okay, you know? You don't know? That's okay, neither do I. People look to us aliens like we're know-it-alls. We aren't. I mean, compared to you, we are. But really, we're just regular folks. Don't judge us. We have our ups and downs, our lean times and fat Tuesdays. We have our days in the sun and our days in the dark. We have our vicissitudes and our vagaries. What do you have? I bet mine's bigger. What am I saying here? What am I getting at? Absolutely nothing, and that's okay. In fact, it's great. It's marvelous. There's too much emphasis on meaning these days. Meaning is an illusion. That doesn't mean you shouldn't poke around looking for it. It doesn't mean it's not worth pursuing a career. It just means that there is no happy ending, and you should realize that and really confront and accept it. There will be those of you who will die peacefully in the presence of loved ones. There are those of you who will die being mauled by a leopard you thought you could trust. But we all leave the world naked and alone, and I hear it's the greatest adventure you'll ever have. Did I say we all? That's wrong. All of us but the really, really fabulous aliens. They can't die because they're not alive in the biological sense. I know, I know, big show-offs. As if being fabulous wasn't enough of a perk. Look, the worst thing you can do is worry. Yes, the world is evolving toward fascism. Yes, the climate is going to hell. But don't worry. For one thing, worry takes away energy you can apply to more pleasant and helpful activities. Two, it's bad for your fragile little nervous systems. And three, it's all going to be okay. We all die at the real end of the movie, the director's cut. 
will be naked, alone, afraid, and that's okay. Why is it okay? It's okay because it's just going to have to be. It's not like we have a choice. Now, please, go back to your regularly scheduled Earth lives and try not to let the capitalists take every ounce of your dignity. I'm not sure how one goes about preventing that. Workers' power is, in fact, growing while this fascism thing has been building, and the people, united, have triumphed before. You're all human. You can avail yourselves of your human resources. It's not an ideal situation, but it's not the worst either. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day. Thank you, Jeff. Well, you're welcome. Uh, you wanted to announce something. Oh, right. Gee, thank you for reminding me. Uh, so, uh, this Saturday, April 30th, at 1.15 p.m. at the Music Box Theater, uh, there will be a showing of the film by Ross Lipman, uh, director of the documentary Not Film, about Beckett's only film, which was a collaboration with Buster Keaton, which in is itself a great film and can be viewed on the Criterion channel. But uh, this weekend is the premiere of The Case of the Vanishing Gods, starring myself and more especially starring Theodore Ublek, playwright and co-founder David Isaacson. And uh, the afternoon begins with... Uh, a short Ublek play by Michael Maher, who is uh, also a co-founder of Theater Ublek. And uh, there will be discussion afterwards with Jonathan Rosenbaum and the director of the film, Ross Lipman, and David, and I, and a puppeteer who, whose name is Audrey, but I can't remember her last name, and probably some other people. And uh, it's just going to be a lovely afternoon. So please come out, one fifteen, April 30th, at the Music Box Theater, Saturday. And uh, people can buy tickets to that just on the... On the web, Music Box music website? Box, but, but yeah. Web, website, okay. Yeah, just go look at that. I don't have tickets in my hand. So, so people always mention tickets to me when I'm involved in these things, and I'm at a stage in my career where I have no connection to tickets at all. Like, I don't even know if they're giving me a comp. Tch. Well, I, I mean. But, you know, Turtle's all the way down, by the way. Mm. What you suspect it is, is, is what it is. That's when the guy says, you know, the earth rests on the back of a turtle. Mm. And he's like, well, what does the turtle rest on? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just on the Turtle's turtle. all the way turtle, down. So if yeah. you're peeing on that, that's a big, that's a big, probably a Noguchi-style fountain. Like, mm. you know. Now, me, myself, my answer to the question from hell is I'm peeing on the red-pilled people. Your Calvin is My Calvin is doing that. I, I delegate that to him. Yeah, delegate it to, uh, to the, 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 yeah. Yeah. <sighs> oh, the red-pilled people. <laughs> they need a good shower. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, a um, golden one. At, at least warm, warm and golden and uh, <laughs> cleansing, yes. and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's like the the, the one of my favorite Twitter moments um, was when uh, uh, what was it? Lana Wachowski basically uh, like re replied to someone who was like, "Yeah, getting red pilled," and then like some 
I forgot who it was. Like some American right wing politician was like, "Yeah, I'm on board with this," and she's like, <laughs> "Screw both of you." And I'm just <laughs> like, "Yeah, that's what happens when you have like a trans text out there that's kind of like completely misunderstood and reinterpreted by the dumbest people on the world because it's just." Uh... I know it's like throwing fish food into the ocean. You just don't know who's gonna eat it. Yeah, could yeah. be a shark. Could be a jellyfish. Could be a mermaid. Mm, yeah, sure. Could be an evil mermaid. Um, aren't all mermaids kind of evil? Have you experienced with that? I don't, really. Mm. Anyway, this <laughs> this concludes this week in Limbo. Uh, we will be back with more Limbo. Maybe even... Wait, don't you have to pick a winner? Yes, I'm getting to it. Oh, okay, sorry. Oh, no, wait a minute. Yes, you're right. You're right. I'm jumping ahead in my... Jesus, yes. Thank you, Jeff. What would I do without you? <laughs> Probably um. relax. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, Jeff, I just I just had to cut your mic off. <laughs> not because I do not abide being corrected or called out on errors that I'm doing. Um, anyway, here we are live from the city of Broad Hangovers whatever that means uh but then this is hell so now let's see about the rest of the answers to this week's question from hell um on twitter yes bill watterson's wish to not have any merchandise made of calvin and Hobbes is uh what matt says that's what his calvin is peeing on that's actually an interesting inversion of that whole um comment idea um hypocrite reader says it's peeing calvin's all the way down where we are back again uh, with the idea of um things all the way down uh kaolite says don't whiz on the electric fence it's our favorite game in the whole world um Okay, I, I guess his, that means his Calvin is not whizzing on an electric fence. Um, and Eatfart69 says, My Calvin is peeing onto his own pee, as portrayed by this Shrinky Dink a friend made me. Uh, and there's a picture of a Shrinky Dink with a Calvin peeing into his own pee. Never-ending Calvin pee. Um... Cola uh, posts a picture of Cal uh, a Kelvin peeing on a thin blue line flag. That's kind of keeping in uh, theme with today's topic. Um, Queequeg's Harpoon writes that their Kelvin pivots between my student loan debt and my tax burden like a lawn sprinkler. Uh, and finally, Yehawk says that their Kelvin is peeing on not having anxiety. I, I don't know why your Kelvin would pee on not having anxiety. Would it not make sense that the Kelvin pees on having anxiety? Anyway, um, so now let's see. Which of these is the winner of this week's question from L? Um, do, 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 do. 
I think I'm actually going to go with uh, Jennifer L. Someone who gave consent. Because, you know, in this day and age, that is actually not, not unimportant. And, and actually a good message for the children. Uh, so congratulations to Jennifer L. We will get in touch to get you get your wish for what piece of merchandise it is that you want to get for your winning answer. Um, and now we're at the point where uh, I almost forgot to read the winners. And this concludes This Week in Limbo. We'll be back with more Limbo. Maybe even Purgatory. Who knows? Next week. Hopefully with me being a little more uh, on point. More staff picks. A brand new Rotten History. A brand new Moment of Truth. And of course, a brand new question from hell with equally brand new answers. Thanks to all my co-producers who keep the show going, even if our dear leader has been smote by the gods for his sins, temporarily. So that we can keep this here rolling heresy against the pantheon of late-stage capitalism going. And with that, to all of you listening, be it live at thisishell.com or as, as a podcast whenever... Whatever you are doing, whoever you are, whatever you are, man, woman, child, he, her, they, them, human, dog, cat, sentient slime mold on a basement wall, artificial intelligence in the future listening to this on a salvaged hard drive that somehow survived the great war in which we ended ourselves. A good and happy week. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>